Welcome to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com. You can send us an email at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at femcoffeepod. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a really special guest on who has their own podcast, who we had shouted out on a previous episode. Mm -hmm. So we'd like to welcome Dr. Amber Thornton. And would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Dr. Amber Thornton. I'm a clinical psychologist. Like you guys have already said, I do have my own podcast, which is called A Different Perspective Podcast. Aside from that, I currently work at a university in Tennessee, providing mental health service for the college students there. I teach a few classes. I do a lot of different things in the clinical psychology or counseling psychology field. So can you orient us a little bit to what your podcast is about? Sure. So my podcast is pretty much dedicated to the mental health needs of people of color. I first started the podcast when I first got licensed as a psychologist, actually. I became really interested in diversity, multiculturalism, with a a very special interest in serving people of color. And so that is really what my podcast is about. It's about me talking about different psychological or mental health issues, but as they relate to people of color more specifically. That's what I try to do with the podcast. It's really fun for me, and I've gotten a lot of good feedback with that, too. I love your podcast. I'm just going to put that out there. I don't mean to fangirl too much like while being recorded. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I wanted to kind of talk to our audience a little bit about some of the discrepancies and services that are faced by people of color versus people who are not people of color, people who are white. Right. There are a lot of differences in terms of, you know, one of the first things I like to think about is just access to treatment. And I think it's important to think about that first, because if we can't get people in the door, then the rest of the stuff doesn't matter. And I actually was having a conversation with someone else recently about just representation in the mental health field. And as you guys might already be aware of, the mental health field right now is predominantly white mostly white women right now. And so many people of color don't feel comfortable seeking out mental health service because it's not a place that they are able to see themselves reflected in the field. And so it can really cause a lot of discomfort and tension and which then leads to lack of access or lack of care. So I think that's a really great point. There are definitely differences in provider demographics. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there are also differences in terms of location. What I notice is that with location in more urban or metropolitan areas, it's easier to find a clinician of color or a mental health professional of color, but in areas that are more rural or more suburban, it's not as easy. And so it seems to me that maybe people of color who are in those areas that are not as urban or metropolitan, they miss out sometimes on or mental health care that would feel comforting to them. Can we talk a little bit about why it is that a person of color might prefer to see a provider of color? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So research kind of tells us a lot of different things about that. And one thing that research has taught us is that the race or ethnicity of the mental health professional helps to get the person in the door. But then after that, sometimes we notice that there isn't much difference with regard to the quality or the comfort or the 
feeling about the service from the client's perspective. So it's not necessarily to say that the person will definitely or automatically have a, a better experience with a person of color, but it helps them to feel more comfortable getting there. And so I think from the client's perspective, sometimes there's this belief that if someone has my shared experience, if they look like me, if they have the same hair as me, or if they maybe celebrate the same holidays or whatever, just generally have shared experiences that they're going to understand me a little bit more. And I know specifically within Black culture, but I think this can be said in other uh, minority cultures too, there are things around language and comfort and use of certain languages and maybe saying things that they might not feel comfortable saying around a white clinician. They are able to do that with a person of color. So things like that, I think, is why, again, the assumption that they will understand me a little bit better or they will be more accepting of what I'm bringing or what I'm coming in with. I think that's the reason why our clients feel that way. So could you speak to maybe a little bit about where you kind of started learning about this? I know you have a podcast episode where you describe kind of coming into this perspective but if you mm-hmm. could kind of give us the summary of that. Yeah, so I guess I could talk a little bit about my graduate training. I went to graduate school straight from my bachelor's degree, and that was just a clinical psychology program, a five-year program at Wright State University, which I love. I'm so glad that I went there because their focus was multiculturalism and diversity. And so I learned a lot about how to think about clinical service and um, mental health care from the perspective of everyone's cultural makeup and diversity and even identities outside of race and ethnicity, things like sexual orientation, gender, socioeconomic status, disability status, just all these things. And so that really set the framework for how I tend to think about psychological or mental health care. I'm always thinking about someone's cultural makeup and their cultural experiences and how that then impacts the way that they think about themselves or the world around them or how they feel in certain spaces. And so from there, after I graduated, I felt like I was prepared to really, (laughs) my program's slogan is preparing today's psychologists for a diverse world. And I really felt like they did that. It was really cool. But then after that, I had a really cool opportunity to teach an African-American psychology course. And it was awesome, but then it also made me realize that even within my graduate program, I still really didn't get a lot of information that was specifically geared towards African-American communities. And so with teaching the course, I actually had to teach myself a lot of information about unique things that impact Black communities or African-American people. It started with my graduate program, but it really picked up some momentum once I started to teach the course, because then I became even more interested in more specific groups, specifically Black communities and more other minority groups. I really wanted to know more about how this field more specifically impacts these people. And so that's where it came from. And I just learned a lot of cool things. And then I realized, like, my now husband, I try to talk to him about these things. And he's an engineer. He's just like, okay, I don't (laughs) want to talk about this anymore. And so it made me realize, like, maybe I should start a podcast. And, you know, maybe people who care about these things will want to listen to me. And so it kind of started from there. So I know another focus of your podcast is kind of mentorship. Mm -hmm talking about the process of being in a clinical psychology program, getting yourself into one, some Mm -hmm. of the different kinds of paths that people take to becoming mental health professionals. Yeah. And 
specifically maybe towards becoming a culturally competent professional. Right. Definitely. That actually happened on accident. That was never, (laughs) that wasn't the intention at all. But I think kind of what we talked about with representation, again, I think this happens in a lot of different minority groups when we see someone who looks like us and doing the thing that we want to do, and we don't usually see that, that's really exciting. And so what I noticed was, you know, when I became more visible on like Twitter or Instagram, people would then email me or send me messages and say, hey, how did this happen? How did you end up doing this? Can you talk me through it? And so that's really how that happened. And so I thought it would just be a nice little component to add to the podcast. And I made some blog posts and some new sections on my website about that. So I'm happy that it was able to help so many people in that way. But that definitely was never the intention. (laughs) Yeah, that's so funny, because I feel like you're really good at communicating what that pathway is to people. I went through the process of applying to clinical psych PhD programs. And like you, I had no desire to get a master's. (laughs) And I will be earning one on passant. (laughs) I have no idea why they put that in French. I'll be earning one on the way. I think there was a whole lot of what felt like arcane knowledge in the Mm -hmm. process that I didn't have access to. I decided to apply after I had graduated from my bachelor's program Mm -hmm. and I had so little guidance. So I think that it's really cool that you are providing that information for people. Yeah. And once I started doing that, I realized how important it was because I know for me, I was a, a first generation college student. And so even with just going to get my bachelor's, there were just so many things I didn't know about. I didn't, I had no idea about things and me and my parents just kind of had to figure it out as we went. Now looking back, there's so many things I would have done differently. So it feels good to be able to help someone who hasn't had this experience or maybe doesn't have a lot of people to help. It feels great to be able to offer that to someone. That's really cool. Yeah. And so I was wondering if you had any advice for any of our listeners who might be interested in psychology, specifically listeners who, you know, identify as people of color, specifically potentially Black listeners, what resources might be out there to help them if they don't have this kind of built-in social push towards it and they're needing to seek it out for themselves? Yep. I would say one of the biggest ways, especially if there are not a lot of people of color around you who are doing this, the internet is such a great resource. It's just crazy how easily you can connect with someone that you otherwise would never connect with. And so I would say, you know, search online and maybe find people who are doing this and don't be afraid to email them, reach out to them. If they don't respond, you haven't lost anything. That's still an attempt. And more specifically on the internet, there are a few places that I encourage people to do. One, within every city, there's usually some sort of psychological association. And so I I encourage them, like, for instance, I talked to someone recently, she said she was in Houston. And so I encouraged her to reach out to the Houston Psychological Association and just see who might be there, who might be a part, what type of resources they might be able to offer. And there might be people of color in that organization who might be willing to help or assist. Also, just nationally, like if someone is interested in being in psychology, really connecting with APA, the American Psychological Association, is always a great resource. And there are different divisions that could assist based on whatever your interests are. For people who are interested in psychology who identify as Black or African-American, there is the Association of Black Psychologists. 
that's a really great resource. When I was in grad school, me and a few of my peers went to their conferences and conventions every year. And it was just a really great way for me specifically to develop my identity as a black psychologist and to understand what that meant for me and what that would mean for my community. There are also other psychological associations that are specific to race and ethnicity. I know that there is a, I believe a Latino, Hispanic psychological association. I believe that there is an Asian American psychological association. There's the Women in Psychology Association, well, Association of Women in Psychology. There's just so many. So really reaching out to those types of associations is really important as well. Cool. Did you have any contact with, I know the APA graduate student organization also has a committee for, I think, racial and ethnic minority students. Mm -hmm. Did you have any interaction with them or do you have any understanding more specifically about what role they play? I will be honest, no, I have had limited contact with APA until recently. The last conference in DC was my very first time going to an APA conference, which was really cool. And I plan to do even more of, but no, I don't have as much contact with APA in their division and then specifically that one. And it's one that I want to look into a little bit more, but I would definitely encourage the listeners to look into that and get some more information and participate in that as well. Cool. So you also go through on your podcast this, and also I see on Twitter, this self-care challenge. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I can. I haven't talked about that in a while, but I'm glad you're asking because I plan on bringing it back at the end of this year to prepare for the next coming year. So the self-care challenge is the 21 days of self-care is actually something that I put together before I even started the podcast. I put it together December of 2016 in preparation for January of 2017. And it really came from a place of me realizing that I needed to do some better self-care. And so I just thought, well, I'm sure I'm not the only one that feels like this. So what if I put together this challenge and make it 21 days long and put in a lot of different tips and advice and suggestions for how one might improve their self-care throughout that 21 days? So it actually ended up being a lot more successful than I thought. I thought I would maybe just get a few friends to follow it with me, but I ended up getting like 300 people sign up which at the time was really cool because at that time I had just started my blog. I wasn't really doing much. So it was fun. And I promoted it a bit on my Twitter. We all started, I believe, January 8th of 2017. And it ran for the 21 days. And it was awesome. So that challenge is still on my website. And again, it's divided up into three weeks. So each week there is a different goal in mind with the first week being really just to learn what self-care is and learning about the different realms of health. And then the following weeks actually getting into practicing those different self-care activities. And so I plan to, which I don't even think I've talked about yet. So you guys are hearing it first. (laughs) Once I finish my break from my podcast, because right now I'm kind of on a podcast break, in December, I'm going to bring that back and talk about it on my podcast and really prepare the listeners for it. And then in January, we're going to start it again. So yeah, I'm excited about that. That's a much needed resource. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've been talking. A yeah, bit about... we did an episode about self care, but it was just our non professional, well, Karen in training <laughs> opinion. <laughs> I am not a professional. My, not yet. <laughs> my layperson opinion. 
That's funny. Well, yeah. And sometimes when I start things, I don't realize the impact that they will have because I've had people tell me like, hey, I've shared these with my clients and I've shared these with my students. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. But then I'm like, okay, well, cool. If they think that it's good and helpful, then that's awesome. And that's the intention. So I'm hoping that this time around, more people will find it useful and it'll be really helpful again. Yeah, I think it'll probably be helpful for a few years to come. (laughs) Yes, I agree with you. (laughs) I had a question. Um, If someone is a person of color and they're looking for someone of their same ethnicity as a mental health care provider, how could they find that out? Mm Mm-hmm. For me, my health insurance, it just lists the name and the gender. So Yeah. I feel like there's not yet a really good way to do that, which is, I think, another barrier. It's really hard to know where the mental health professionals of color are or who they are. And a lot of times, like you said, they just list the names. And so we don't really know. So one thing that I encourage people to do, which doesn't help for every clinician, but sometimes clinicians will have Psychology Today profiles and they will have their name in their picture and they'll have their specializations. And so I would maybe kind of cross check the list, maybe like check the list from your insurance company and then search on psychology today, see if you can find them. And that helps, it helps sometimes. I know that there are a few blogs that have like directories of clinicians of color. I know there's one called Therapy for Black Girls which is predominantly a lot of Black women clinicians. And so that's helpful for people who are interested in working with a clinician who identifies as a Black woman. But otherwise, I don't know of other great ways to do this other than maybe seeking out the specific psychological associations related to the race or ethnic groups. So that might be another good way to find someone, too. Um, recently, there was a controversy about a, a very racist few pages in a nursing textbook about cultural competency, and it just seemed to boil it down into stereotypes. I don't know if you're aware of that, if you saw that. No. Oh, okay. It was about pain tolerance. Maybe I did. Tell me a little bit, because I feel like I've heard about this. It was just offensive stereotypes, like Jewish people will complain a lot and Latino people will believe that it's part of Jesus's suffering. I'm just repeating those because I'm part Jewish and part Latino. The rest were fairly disturbing. And it was an attempt to educate nursing students about cultural competency. And it made the whole discipline of cultural competency seem and multiculturalism in healthcare seem like a big joke or a big racist stereotype thing. And I just wanted to ask you as, you know, someone who actually knows what cultural competency and multiculturalism is, what actually is it? Because (laughs) we know it's not a group of stereotypes that are on a page. What actually is cultural competency? It's frustrating and it's scary because like you said, this information is in our textbooks. It's a part of the knowledge that we expect people to take in when they want to become professional. So that's really, really frightening. So I think when thinking about cultural competency, I think around the 60s and 70s is when it first started to become a thing. And in those early days, it looked a lot like that. It was very much, you know, what do I need to know about this group of people so that I'll know how to work with them? And luckily, many of us, not everyone, but many of us have evolved our thinking about cultural competence to know that it's more than just memorizing the set of stereotypes about a certain group. And so my understanding of cultural competence is, and again, I feel very blessed to be from my graduate program because this is where I I learned this knowledge. But 
when I was in that program, we spent very little talking about specific groups. That was really not the focus. The focus was to really understand that with everyone, there is some sort of cultural makeup, some sort of cultural background, and it was made up of a lot of different cultural identities. We were trained on the addressing model, and that's not a model that everyone knows, but it's just one way to train or to talk about diversity. And the addressing model is a really large acronym for a lot of different cultural variables. And so it's age, disability status, religion, ethnicity, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, indigenous heritage, nationality, and gender. And so that is, when I think of cultural competence, I think of the core of it really is just understanding that all of us in this world have those variables. And that means that we are going to see the world in very different ways. And just understanding that the way that I see the world and the way that I think about things are not going to be the way that someone else does. And that is okay. But as a clinician, it is my job to really understand that that is the case and then to think about the psychological things that I know and how they might vary or change or be different for someone who has a different walk of life based on their cultural variables. So I hope that gives you a, how I think of cultural competence. It is that. If someone wants a specialization in a certain group, then that's when you kind of digest the research and the knowledge and all that. So like, for instance, me teaching an African-American psychology class, it's me learning about a lot of different research and a lot of studies about this group specifically, but it's not the stereotypes and then projecting them on a certain person. So that is what I think of cultural competence. And again, I'm so glad it's evolved a bit, but I still think there's a lot more work to do. Definitely a lot. Clearly. (laughs) So much. Yeah. I also wanted to talk to you a little bit, and I don't know if this is part of your specialty or not, so let me know if I'm like off, but Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about white identity. I think that probably the majority of our listeners are white, Mm -hmm. and I don't know that all of our listeners would consider that an identity, and I was wondering if you could speak to the research on that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm probably not the best person to like speak on the research and everything, but I can kind of give you a little bit of what I think about it. It's definitely an identity. In my position at the university that I work with, a part of what I do is supervision and training. And we have interns, we have practicum students, most of them are white. And so I spend a lot of time talking with them about white identity and what that means because they're realizing that it's important for them to understand that in order to work with their clients. Again, I know very little about the actual research on this, so I'm clearly speaking about my experience of this more like anecdotally. But I think what I've noticed with working with my students is that it's really difficult to think of that as an identity because I think with any type of privilege, whether it be race or sexual orientation or nationality, sometimes we just don't even notice that it's there. Like, for example, when I think of being American, I don't really think about that much until I leave the country or until something negative happens that I'm upset about with politics. But otherwise, I don't really think about it as much. It's just this invisible thing that I embody. And I think that that happens a lot of times for white people. This is just something that you haven't really been socialized to think about more directly. And so with coming to that awareness, there is a lot of feeling of guilt and confusion and conflict about thinking of that as an identity and what that means for you and what that means for other people around you. 
So one thing that I use a little bit, not as frequently, but there is a white racial identity model that is really helpful for people who are interested in that topic. And you can easily just Google white racial identity model. And there are, I believe, six stages of that model. It's really helpful for people who are wanting to learn a little bit more about that identity and what that means. Thank you so much for sharing that information. I love when somebody's like, here's what you can Google. <laughs> yeah, it's so easy to Google. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> a lot of the time I'm curious about things and I just don't know where to start my Google. <laughs> yep. So thank you. You're welcome. Just kind of in wrapping up, is there anything that you think our listeners should be taking away from this conversation in terms of self-care, in terms of increasing access or information about minority mental health, or in terms of increasing training programs for minority mental health? Yeah, there's so much I could say about all those things that I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry for the super broad question. <laughs> to keep it simple, I think... One thing that's really helpful is just increasing our awareness about certain things, whether it be self-care or mental health for minority people or thinking more broadly about access to mental health services, just expanding our awareness about these things. That might mean reading articles that you might otherwise not read or talking to people that you maybe otherwise wouldn't have a conversation with, just to kind of get a different perspective about what else is happening around you or in the world or with other people. I think that is a really great place to start. And even with self-care, now I'm going to bridge over to the self-care topic, learn more about what that means. Because I think for some people, it means very different things. For other people, it means some other things. And so kind of getting different perspectives about what is self-care? What does that look like for some people? But what does it feel like for me? And, and what feels good to me? So I'm just a big proponent of increasing your awareness as much as you can through reading, through conversation, through listening to podcasts. Whatever you can do, the more awareness that you have about something, the, the better able you'll feel to help participate or engage or, or make a change. Amazing. I know I said wrapping up, but I actually have more questions. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you had two podcast episodes that I think um, our listeners would probably really, really benefit from. Specifically, you had a podcast about what white people can do to support movements for racial justice in America, and another episode that was about restoring hope through activism. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I feel like we've specifically self-care through activism definitely talked about on our podcast. I thought that was like, maybe just like, look what I've discovered. I feel better when I go to a protest and this is why it's fun, you know? And so I would love to hear you kind of speak more as a clinical professional about that. Mm -hmm. And maybe also about the things that white people can do to help racial justice movements. Yeah. Say a little bit more about what you mean, the protest part. But you talked a bit about um, reasons why engaging in activism is useful mm -hmm. for restoring feelings of hope. Okay, so I find that I think this is helpful with people of color, with white people, with people in and out of privileged groups. I think it's helpful for anyone who actually cares about social justice, because I think when you care and you feel empathy around these different topics, sometimes you feel hopeless. Because I think that, you know, it means that you notice that there is a long haul and that a lot of these issues have been happening for a really long time. And sometimes it doesn't even look like it'll ever be resolved, definitely not in your lifetime. And so it can make you feel very hopeless. And so 
from a psychological or a clinical perspective, I know that when I have, for instance, a client who is feeling hopeless, one way to help them feel differently in that moment is to do something we call like behavioral activation or to help them get active. And so it gets them moving, it gets them mobile, it gets them thinking about things or doing something, and that can help ease the feeling of hopelessness. And so thinking about that concept and applying it to social justice or activism, when we feel hopeless, activism can help to restore that because it makes us feel like we are doing something, we are working towards something. And even if it's not a change that we are going to see tomorrow or the next day, it's us contributing to something bigger. That brings us hope. That's what I think I was trying to get across in that episode of just wanting people to engage in various forms of activism and also helping people to realize that, again, just like self-care, activism looks different for everybody. For some people, it's going to protest. For other people, it is just being their authentic selves. For other people, it is lobbying, or for other people, it is teaching young children. Whatever way that you feel you can give back or contribute to some sort of social movement or just cause, that is your form of activism, and it is helpful and it's useful, and it's also helpful in restoring hope. Cool. And then um, the other part, are there a few like choice suggestions that you might be able to give for some white people who are looking to get involved? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, definitely. And and hopefully you guys will share that episode if you haven't already. Listen to that episode because I think I went through like 30 or 35 different things. It was a lot. You gave like a full menu. (laughs) Yeah, we'll definitely link to it in the the show notes. Yeah, I think listening to that could be helpful because Mm -hmm. with that, again, I just wanted to give a variety of things because there's not just one thing that you can do. So with that, listen to that. And then I would recommend doing something that initially feels comfortable for you so that you can start to engage in this type of movement or engage in these conversations. One thing, and I think I talked about this in that episode, but the one thing that I always come back to that I think is really helpful is for white people who are wanting to work towards racial, social justice please, please, please have some other white allies that you can communicate with and touch base with and interact with. Because I think in the process of working with these issues and doing these things, you too will become exhausted and you will become hopeless and you will want to give up. And you probably will have interactions with people of color that won't feel good just because you're an ally doesn't necessarily mean that the group that you are wanting to help is going to be receptive. And so you're going to have all of these experiences that might not feel comfortable. And there might be a desire to communicate and vent that to another person of color. And I don't think that that's helpful. And so I would say really find a community of other white allies who get this experience and who want to work towards the same things. I think that will bring a great sense of support and community to the work that you're doing. It's helpful. I think that's really, really wise advice. (laughs) For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're amazing. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. This was fun. And I'm glad that you guys are talking about this stuff with your listeners. And I hope this is helpful for them, too. So thank you so much. Where can people find you online? So my website is www.dramberthornton.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amber Thornton. And then I have a Facebook 
thing is at Dr. Amber Thornton as well. I don't use it as much as I do my Twitter and my Instagram, but you can find me either one of those places. And my podcast is called A Different Perspective Podcast, and that can be found on um, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Great. Thank you so much. And I'm on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And I'm on Twitter at uh, Karen. Like U-H-K-A-I-N. Yeah, yeah, like U-H-K-A-I-N if you weren't sure. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Right. Thank you. Bye. 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 The Political Flavored Feminist Coffee Hour podcast theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.